Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. This is Emma Larking. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian National University and I love the program Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 on the AM dial. I am convinced that biology should be taught as a course in human-animal relationships, not as a study of dead bodies or caged victims. Linda Hogan, 1991. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Last week, we had part one of an interview with Professor Carol J. Adams. And this week, we have part two of our interview about her book, The Sexual Politics of Meat. And I'm speaking to Professor Carol J. Adams. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Beth. Is there any connection between sexual violence and meat eating? <laughs> I don't want to say what radio interviewers here in Texas used to do back in the 90s when everybody, when the right wing and all was really upset about sexual politics of need and it was quite a target back then for Rush Limbaugh and and other right wing journalists, so-called journalists or radio people. And they'd say, do you mean that if I eat a hamburger I'm going to beat my wife is how it would be asked of me. And, And I'm not saying anything that explicit. I think it's it's much more complicated, but I think any time a being is objectified, then they become vulnerable, or as I talk about in pornography, it means violable. They become beings who could be violated. And that looking at, so freely talking about women and our body parts, or that our body parts stand in for us, keeps us from being seen as individuals who have the right to our own bodies. Our bodies are not something we possess, but something that someone else possesses. And one of the first things that happens with sexual violence is that the individual who's being violent often stops referring to the victim by her name. She becomes called by a body part. You're, you're a beep. Uh, or other things like that. So that they, they automatically become objectified to a change in how language is working. Batterers often do this too. Stop referring to their partner by her name. But uh, through, oh, you old cow. They're using language that we 
been laid down upon our culture through meat-eating, a language of objectification and violence. And they're seizing that language because of the kind of porousness between meat-eating and male dominance. It's the fluidity of the interchange or the, the porousness of, of these attitudes then become used against human victims who aren't, again, seen as human because the human is the male and the woman is a woman and she's closer uh, to the other species. The uh, other way that I, I see a relationship is that how, how do we end up with what we've been talking about is meat. How does meat come into existence? Meat only exists because of the forced impregnation of farm females. Uh, cows kept pregnant. Pigs, cows kept pregnant. And one of the things, it, it, it's not just that they are, are forcibly impregnated over and over again, but they are then called beep and pussies and and bitches. And so that porousness works on the other side as well, so that the misogyny that that comes about through a patriarchal world is employed against these female animals who are constantly being made pregnant. I mean, they are the ones who are pregnant and barefoot down on the farm. And we keep that, that whole superstructure of what's happening to the female animals away from our consciousness. That's part of the absent reference status. And so even though we don't know that it's uh, profoundly uh, misogynistic and prevalent, What's happening is that there's been a conversation in animal agriculture for years about female availability and uh, doing it and give it to that bitch that is looking on the other side of the species line and also enacts forms of sexual violence. Now, how we would label that is a very difficult thing because we all want to respect survivors of sexual violence and not say that this one thing is exactly like that one thing. So I, I want to be careful in using that language. But the fact is we need to find a term that recognizes that meat-eating exists because of the constant abuse of the female reproductive cycle and the male because, the, you know, uh, turkey, turkeys are, they've got to collect the semen of the turkeys or the, or the, the male cows. So all of that uh, also creates a certain kind of uh, language of dominance. But this is often invisible to us when we think that feminism is only something about relationships among humans. Hey, now, Frankenstein's monster was vegetarian, wasn't it? 
yes, Frankenstein's monster was a vegetarian. I had a lot of fun working on that for sexual politics of meat. I <laughs> I was trying to figure it out because there aren't a lot of references in the book, but there were enough to to clue us in. He, he at, at one point the monster says, "I I don't." I don't eat your food, I don't kill the lamb or slaughter the kid. And so I was trying to figure out why did Shelley do that? And I looked at the tradition of what I call romantic vegetarians, who uh, all um, embrace vegetarianism as part of the sort of progressive vision, the, the changed world is coming, and they they drew upon Pythagoras and Plutarch and uh, Ovid's uh, Metamorphosis. And what I found was that the whole romantic vegetarian tradition can be illustrated by looking at the reasons for Frankenstein's monster's vegetarianism. And when the monster declares this, he's asking Victor, build me a partner, I'm lonely, and and we'll go to South America. And and then he describes uh, this Pacific vision of of life. And, of course, that's not what happens. So one of the things one could argue is that it's the the proof of, of nurture over nature that the monster wanted to be kind and uh, the culture that greeted, greeted the monster made him into the monster. He, he wasn't born a monster. The culture made him the monster, one could argue. I think what I was trying to do there with that chapter wasn't just make that argument and, and look at the feminist issues a lot of feminist literary criticism has, has been devoted to this book and, and feels that one of them, I think Gilbert and Gubar, talk about how angry Mary Shelley was and, and all the anger that, that goes into this book. But I also wanted to provide a model for what, how people could, how literary critics could talk about vegetarianism in novels. Because up until that time, it was either ignored or... You know, nobody. It, there didn't seem to be a way to integrate the vegetarianism into into an analysis of the novel. So I was trying to, in that chapter, in the the next one, which looks at vegetarian references during the uh, around the beginning of the Great War and the relationship between vegetarianism and pacifism and veg- and feminism in novels, is to provide a model for others to then use on. Um, many different kinds of novels. And and the kind of exciting thing was that I immediately started hearing from graduate students and, and others who, who did exactly that, who, who realized that, that you could be doing this. And so I think this is one reason that sexual politics of need is seen as, as being one of those founding texts of eco-criticism, because it provided a methodology, not just an argument. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and I'm speaking to Professor Carol J. Adams about the sexual politics of meat. Where does vegetarian end and feminism begin, or vice versa? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a great uh, question, and I think... 
I guess I want to answer that in a roundabout way, maybe proving the point uh, by being roundabout, which is that at the point at which I wrote the book, the word vegan wasn't well known. And many of the, there's a part of the book where I talk about vegetarians in history, and it was hard to tell whether they were vegetarians or, or not eating dairy products as well. But the kind of vegetarianism I'm arguing for uh, at that point would have been called a complete vegetarian, one who doesn't use any uh, animal products. And so now I would say the question is really veganism and feminism, because we really need to, to be alert to the, the awful experiences of cows and hens in being forced to produce uh, milk and eggs. And when, when vegans say there's, there's a little bit of veal in every glass of milk, what they're talking about is that if the veal calf were getting its mother's milk, then the milk wouldn't be going to human beings, and so that would not be profitable. So most calves are removed within 15 minutes of birth. It's wrenching for the cow uh, who laments and grieves, and I know that those are words that some people feel are anthropomorphic, but anyone who's heard a cow mooing after uh, a calf has been removed would, would know that, that is not, those are not in appropriate terms. So for feminism and veganism, there are just so many different sort of resonances between them, but I think it begins with the dairy cow and the chicken forced to, into this reproductive labor in which their labor is stolen from them and then their bodies. It, it, what I meant when I first said it was also the idea that if the absence of meat threatens patriarchy, then every time we eat a vegan meal, we are saying something about what we don't need in our world. It's not just that we don't need animal products. It's that we don't need the kind of dominance that patriarchy has created and uh, reassert all the time. So that the feminist act of being a vegetarian and the vegetarian act of declaring I have the right to make decisions about what's going in my body, which is a feminist act, that those kind of correspondences is what I was trying to gesture towards. Yes, I remember being in the, in the feminist movement Round about the time when your book came out, and how a lot of lot of feminists were, were sort of putting pressure on other feminists who who weren't vegetarian, and I think that uh, a lot of lot of feminists just wouldn't acknowledge it, and and it actually reminded me of an incident when my daughter was three and she was going to kindergarten, and I said to her do you see that other people eat meat? And she said, yes. And I said, do you know what it is and, and how it's produced? And she said, no. And I said, well, they they get animals. And I said, and they kill them. And they cut their bodies up so that people can eat them. And I said, I don't think that's right. And that's why we don't eat meat. I said, do you think that's right? She had quite a horrified look on her face. And she said, no. And 
there was other parents at the kindergarten who said to me, oh, you know, don't tell little Sally where meat comes from. And I thought there was this awareness around about three when children are sort of, you know, the world's a very wondrous place and they're questioning a lot of things, but their parents wouldn't let them know where meat came from because if they did, the children would stop eating meat. Yeah, I, I think that that's very true. Now, there are some philosophers who, who become vegetarians because their children asked that question and they were self-actualized enough to, to recognize that was a very legitimate question. And then there's others. I know my son, he had a friend in kindergarten and had told the friend, I don't eat animals. I'm not going to eat animals. They're killed. I don't want to eat them. So the friend, and he ate with us a lot. The, the father was out of town a lot, and the mother was very busy. So he was probably over here once or twice a week. And he goes home, and the next night they went out and to McDonald's or something, and he declared that he wasn't going to eat a chicken McNugget. And his mother said, if you don't eat your supper, you're not going to get dessert. And that was the end of his vegetarianism. I mean, this, this need to have children conform to the parents I mean, the parents were lied to at some point. And this is a challenge for vegans. But we're saying to the world, yeah, you got lied to. You got lied to by your parents and by, by, by the culture and by the school. And by the time you realized you were lied to, you found that you liked the taste of it. The other pivotal time besides the three- to five-year-old is that preteen, eight- to 11-year-old, and I, I've always been concerned about that because a lot of girls at that age argue for giving up animals. They don't want to eat dead animals. And really, they talk about that time from the parents' point of view is that we should be mirroring the kids. Oh, is that what you want to do? Sure, let's try that. But this is, kids are exploring their identity. But parents, you know, they might say, oh, sure, I'll take you to ballet. Oh, sure, you can do just take up clarinet. But when kids say, no, I don't want to eat meat, no, no, you've got to eat meat. So that we've got a kind of different problem, a lack of imagination uh, uh, to begin with, a narrowness, a, a, a threat. I think veganism is very threatening to, the, to meat eaters because we're saying it can be done. It can be done well, and we, we, we're very happy. We don't wake up every day missing something. We're so beyond that, you know, we might never really have entered that space. We're just very happy. We have, we probably eat more varieties of food than the average meat eater. And we're exploring, but when we think of it as an act of an imagination, then it's also an act of resistance. You don't have to believe what you were told. It's okay to find it out on your own. Do you think that the media is responsible for making meat-eating a sign of male dominance? No, the media just knows a good thing when it sees it. Uh, the, the associations were so deep and, and were there before we had this kind of popular culture explosion uh, through social media or through advertisements in the mid-century, mid mid-20th century. They just seized upon the stereotypes or the sort of prototypes of, of, of who, who we're supposed to be, and they exploit that. 
if you feel that you need to eat meat every day, then you're going to buy the product if, if this instability is reinforced. Or even if it's made fun of enough that you're laughing but recognizing it at the same time. I mean, there's lots of ads that make fun of it, but in a way that reinforces the idea as well. I think it's been passed on from, for generations, the notion that men need meat. And I, I would say what we know is that I think meat-eating will continue to always be part of the last gasp of male dominance. But right now, I am not saying blind at all that we are seeing the last gasp of male dominance, not with the Trump win. No, that's a good point. Well, thank you very much for coming onto the program today. Well, thank you, Beth. Thanks for the wonderful questions. And people should know I've got a website, and they can email me from the website, caroljadams.com. And I'm happy to answer questions. And just would like to suggest read, read feminists, explore veganism, and accept the challenges of being radical in the current world we're in. Yeah, thank you. And I've been speaking to Professor Carol J. Adams about the sexual politics of meat. You're listening to Radical Philosophy at 8.55 a.m. This is Susan Wolfe from the University of North Carolina. And that's about all we have time for today. And hope you've enjoyed part two of Professor Carol J. Adams speaking about the sexual politics of meat. Now, all of the interviews from Radical Philosophy are up on the Facebook page. Just uh, just Google Facebook Radical Philosophy and you don't need to be on Facebook yourself to access the interviews on Facebook and also there's the Radical Philosophy website where there will be the latest four episodes of Radical Philosophy. So I hope you've enjoyed the program and do tune in again next week. I'm Bridget Evans and you're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial.